You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Welcome, listeners. Our big news is that tomorrow... Myself and our president, Catherine Cashmore, will be presenting at the Land Titles Registry Privatisation Inquiry. It's on at 11am, right near Spring Street. Uh, Check prosper.org.au if uh, you want to come and uh, see democracy in action. And of course, we will be presenting on the madness that is selling off a core government function. I mean, what greater role is there of government than to own and secure Who owns the land of the nation? Well, apparently that is up for grabs. Uh, We're selling off a core government function to a private operator who then in the future will on-sell our data in uh, currently unimaginable formats, generally aggregated uh, means of analysing where property sharks can attain the greatest unearned incomes uh, with the least effort. That's what this data gold rush is all about, sitting on your iPad uh, in a hammock uh, in your favourite tax haven, buying and selling real estate using these incredible forms of data analysis that all sorts of algorithms are pulling together. Well, thanks, Premier Andrews. Uh, You're continuing to play out your role as the rent seeker's best friend. Great on health and education and all those fluffy left things, but when it comes to hard-nosed economic reform, you're as limp-wristed as uh, the Liberals. I wonder where you will be working when you uh, finish your time in Parliament. Okay, now I've got that off my chest. Uh, We're going to look at another one of Andrew's uh, favourite projects, the Western Distributor. Trying to lighten the load there on the road networks. Is it really necessary? What place does it hold amongst uh, Victoria's strategic planning regimes? Let's step into the interview with this week's host, Emily Sims, as she completes her investigation into PPPs with Crystal Legacy, the senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Melbourne. And they're accompanied by Nathan Pittman, who's a PhD candidate also in planning at UniMel. All right, I'm here with Crystal Legacy and Nathan Pittman to talk about the Westgate Tunnel and um, some of the implications arising from that mega urban transport project. Um, Crystal, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, yes. Um, My name is Dr. Crystal Legacy. I'm senior lecturer here in urban planning at the University of Melbourne, and my interests are in urban governance and urban transport politics. So I'll now introduce Nathan. Good afternoon. My name is Nathan Pittman. I'm a PhD candidate here at the University of Melbourne, and my interests are in uh, transportation planning and the creation of, of visions of the future of transportation. So Crystal, there's been a lot of conversation about the proposed Westgate Tunnel uh, as a kind of an enlargement of the Western Distributor Project that the Andrews government took to the last election. Can you um, elucidate for us, what's the strategic rationale behind the project? Well, the Westgate Tunnel is a market-led proposal proposed by Transurban, which is a toll operating company here um, in Australia. The Andrews government got elected in 2014 on a platform to build the $500 million Westgate 
distributor, which was a series of ramps, effectively, going onto the Westgate Freeway. It was part of a truck action plan, which came out of a study that was undertaken in 2008 by Sir Rod Eddington. So the first iteration of this project had some strategic rationale because it was born from a study that was undertaken at that point in time, and also in, in reflecting on a need in the West to remove the trucks off some of the local streets. Um, it was a really pressing concern for many of the neighbourhoods and folks who live in that area. As a former resident of Somerville Road, I can attest to that. Ah, fantastic, yes, and and some of the community groups out there are, are really working hard to, to ensure that that is actually delivered as a goal for this particular project. Now, the Westgate Tunnel Project is a much bigger project. I believe it's a $5.5 billion project, which is going to be funded through an extension to the city link tolls, as well as um, public investment of, I believe, $1.3 billion state government money. Whether it sits within the strategic framework for for Victoria is certainly in question, and we're seeing that now get played out, particularly as local councils like City of Melbourne start raising some concerns about the impact that's going to have on their local streets, and it doesn't sit with their strategic rationale and intents for transportation planning. Yeah, one of the um, big criticisms that seems to be coming out from City of Melbourne is the idea that building the road down Dynon, the elevated freeway that's proposed for Footscray Road, Mm -hmm. will have severe impacts on the capacity of the City of Melbourne to realise the expanded city centre brownfields development in the Plan Melbourne. Is this a trade-off? Is that what this kind of project is? Well, I don't know who's been at the table trading anything with respect to this project. I think that's one of the the key problems with it, is its planning and the governance that sits around it. I'm not sure if Transurban went to the City of Melbourne, had a conversation about eGate, which is the Mm. um, extended part of the CBD, which is, is currently up for renewal. Um, in a very exciting project, particularly if you speak to folks living in Northwest Melbourne, you know, they're very excited about what's to come. Mm. And yes, this project might compromise that, that redevelopment in ways that we don't fully know because the land use implications of the Westgate Tunnel are still a bit unknown at this stage. Yeah, that has been one of the big media questions. What is the point of this gold-plated project? Because obviously the Western distributor had, as you say, quite marked rationale. In in many ways, it was a response to some of the lobbying that was done by the Maribyrnong um, Truck Action Group and uh, the Greens uh, to get the trucks off uh, the local residential streets. But one of the criticisms of the Westgate Tunnel is it's just simply oversized. It's a much mm. larger project than was imagined for the, yeah. for the distributor. It's hard to say what the the impacts will be in terms of the land use around around the uh, the road itself. But what do you think the city shaping impacts of this will be? If I mean, one of the benefits that's being touted, if you download the government's PDF benefits for Geelong, benefits for Ballarat, benefits for Western Melbourne, is the concern and question around congestion, traffic congestion, and also increasing travel times. There's this, the, one of the benefits that has been touted is that traffic congestion will be eased and that um, travel times from the west will be more rapid. Is there international evidence to support road building as a solution to congestion? 
No. <laughs> well, um, this is the thing that drives transport planning academics mad in, in some respects is this this idea that in building roads, you can actually manage and control and reduce congestion. I mean, we know about latent demand. We know if you build it, they will come. And that's true for any form of infrastructure and you know, tr um, public transport infrastructure as well. So in the context of this project, there's already concerns that once it's built, the road will be at capacity very, very quickly. And you asked initially the question about this um, strategic impacts of this project. Certainly in, in listening to um, and reading some of the um, transcripts from some of the hearings recently with Transurban, you know, there's going to be significant sort of network effects that is, you know, greater sort of networking of this project with the other sort of tollways and freeways in, in Melbourne, which um, would, would possibly make the case for the East-West Link, which was defeated at the 2014 election a real and growing possibility. I mean, if, if what we want to do is, is achieve some kind of mode shift away from car dependency and start building in greater choice, we need to start prioritizing more public transport. Um, and so one of the failings, I think, with the Westgate Tunnel Project is the lack of consideration of what the alternatives could have been in, to address some of the, the issues in the West, as you've noted before. So is that the plan? Like I've read Plan Melbourne, I've read the Infrastructure Victoria, but maybe our listeners haven't read Infrastructure Victoria's voluminous 30-year plan. Is this the plan to uh, link all the roads in Melbourne? Or what? what's, when you said, Crystal, you know, the plan to, to is to get a modal shift, what does that actually mean? And is that in fact the plan? Well... Or whose plan, rather? Yeah, yeah, look, I, I think when you look at Plan Melbourne and, and even metropolitan strategies from the last sort of... 10 to 15 years, really dating back to Melbourne 2030, you know, there's been an interest in, in achieving some kind of mode shift and recognizing that car dependency isn't perhaps something that we should continue to promote into the future for, for you know, obvious reasons, um, climate change just being one. But the uh, Westgate distributor, which it was called formerly, wasn't part of, of Instructor Victoria's brief in their development of the 30-year strategy. It wasn't up for consideration. It wasn't one of the projects it was assessing at that time um, because it was considered to be a done deal. It was considered to be a decision that was made prior to the development of that plan. Um, I don't believe the, the Westgate Tunnel appears in Plan Melbourne either, although I am happy to be proven wrong there. Um, but, the, the, but the real problem is that we don't have an integrated strategy. You know, we, we, don't, we don't do strategic planning as well as I think we could mm -hmm. in terms of proposing and delivering a long-term plan that can survive political cycles. And along with that plan, have in place a transportation plan, housing plan, uh, you know, an active transport plan. And, and that seems to be lacking. So a, my concern in Victoria is a lack of ma maturity in terms of how we do strategic planning. We were very good at producing documents, single documents in a, in a period of time that will perhaps last up until a government is defeated into the next election. And then you've got another sort of period of refreshing of what, what the strategy um, could be. Uh, but I don't think Infrastructure Victoria's 30-year infrastructure um, plan is itself a, a comprehensive integrated plan. It's a series of project proposals. Listeners, you're on 3CR's Renegade Economist this week with uh, my colleague Emily Sims hosting the show again. 
She's uh, in discussion with uh, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning, Crystal Legacy from the University of Melbourne and Nathan Pittman, PhD candidate from there as well. Let's get back into the analysis. You can see how the political pressure for a project like this grows as land is released on the um, western fringes as you know housing affordability becomes a problem as we're still struggling to do infield development and as you say provide the modal alternatives public transport active transport to get people to where they need to be so I guess I have a question around this dynamic when I spoke to Dr Sophie Sterrup we talked about the governmentality of major projects and the ways in which problems and solutions arise in a kind of dynamic relationship Do you think one of the issues at play here, and Nathan, this might be a better question for you, is that the problem in this case is being framed by the solution of the large road project? So I would think that this is probably something that's going on in the Westgate Tunnel, but I haven't looked at it specifically and drawn out what the problem is and what the solution is in their various different forms. In the East-West Tunnel, however, you can observe this from about 2003 onwards uh, as, a, as a, some sort of project that initially appeared in 1969. In a report in 2003, it appeared and was rejected. There were two different forms of the East-West Tunnel in that particular report, one to the city. So this is the East-West Tunnel that uh, yes. formed part of the East-West Link strategy? Yes. It was the second stage of the East-West Link strategy that was recently defeated? Uh, The east-west tunnel between uh, the Eastern Freeway and the City Link. So that was the second stage of that strategy from the Eddington report, which Mm -hmm. we've mentioned just before. So it's been kicking around for a while and every time they they propose it, people get angry because they don't want a road there. And fair enough. In the case of the east-west tunnel, the ways in which the problem was defined uh, varies in terms of transport and in terms of benefits and cost over time. So uh, in the 2003 Northern City Corridor report, what is east and what is west are defined fairly loosely and it doesn't look as though there's a problem. You come through to 2008 in the Eddington report and what is east and what is west are defined somewhat differently and that's when that road starts looking viable again. By the time you get to the business case, East and West are again defined slightly differently uh, and the road is changed a little bit more to make it look as though it could get more traffic in the models and it looks as though it might actually work as a a viable solution. The extent to which this is happening in the Westgate Tunnel, I'm not sure. That's something for me to do in the coming years uh, because that's quite a lot of documentation you have to look at, but I would say it's probably the case. It's an observable phenomenon in, in most mega projects. Uh, Dr. Sophie Stirrup looked at quite a few. There's evidence from, from Sweden uh, in a railway tunnel there that went through various iterations and, and nearly collapsed and they had to start rebuilding it and eventually after 20 years it was built. So I would think so. That's one of the uh, issues that was raised in my conversation with Dr. Sophie Stirrup is that the east-west tunnel, east-west link and the proposed market-led proposal for the Westgate Tunnel. Transurban had no skin in the game in the East-West Link and she pointed to some very interesting differences between the business model that Transurban runs 
and the business model that's often used in PPP public-private partnership arrangements, which is, she described as a franchise model. And I think it's really interesting, that nuance, because, for example, what she's saying is that Transurban were very unsure about the traffic forecasting and traffic demand in so far as their model couldn't have worked on the East-West link. But they're quite certain that they will get the demand for the Westgate tunnel insofar as they're willing to put $5 billion of their own money towards it. And of course that comes with the concession, the 10-year concession on the City Link, which has been very profitable. Do you think there's a relationship between the success and failure of these road proposals or infrastructure proposals and the funding models that surround them? Well, I think... I mean, in terms of political success, are you talking about the actual sort of economic viability and success of the project once it's built because of the East-West Link was not successful politically? Both. Both, okay. Yeah, or maybe tease out the differences. Okay. Well, I I can speak more so to the latter um, because that's related specifically to my research. And in the context of the East-West Link, it, it wasn't viable politically. Uh, because the the process for making the decision that the East-West Link ought to be the priority for the state at that time came after an election that was won based on a pro-public transport mandate. So there was a shift in focus. And so the extent to which this project had political legitimacy from sort of a uh, an election cycle perspective is drawn into question, but also just the way in which that project was was introduced to the community and marketed to to citizens of Melbourne was a little bit should be called into question. I mean, the business case wasn't public, and I mean, and I know with public private partnerships, one of the challenges with that is is transparency. Of, of, of what sits behind those decisions. And that's something that I think is worthwhile, not only calling out, but also look to international examples of where those models are, are slightly different. But I'm prepared to speculate here, because uh, why not? But I'm willing to go so far as to say that if the Westgate Tunnel Project gets built and the East-West Link is eventually put on the table again, that maybe perhaps Transurban would be a little bit more excited about that project. I would think that's especially the case given that the Northeast Link enables a broader northeast to southwest connection to happen across the city at freeway standard. Um, so it's it's that question of the wider network, it's going to be difficult to justify a really expensive underground tunnel across the top of the city through Carlton, unless you have the roads that will feed into that really efficiently. So this is the long-term plan, perhaps, from the private operator. Mm. I think, well, Transurban have been very successful at um, kind of picking up monopolies over road networks and all the major cities, eastern seaboard cities in Australia. Certainly um, being able to toll cars coming in and out of Melbourne seems to be a big part of this particular proposal for the Westgate. Uh, The city of Melbourne are very concerned about the two exits into Mm. the city, but you can certainly see that those two exits would be very profitable in terms of car traffic. But how do they make these kinds of decisions, Nathan? Because the business case is available for us Mm. to look at. I mean, how do they, how do Transurban go as well? We know this is going to be particularly economically viable how are they how do they forecast the demand for these kinds of things i'm not sure if you could say no it's a strategic guessing game of sorts um the they use things called travel demand forecasts or travel demand models 
these are really quite complicated and sophisticated econometric tools that, that uh, present a picture of what traffic might be uh, at a forecast year in the future. So in the case of the Westgate Tunnel, that, that year is 2031. So what, what they do, their mode of knowing is to present uh, two pictures. Both are set in 2031. One of them is including the project and one of them is not including the project. So in this case, the Westgate Tunnel. They have a, a picture of 2031 without the tunnel and a picture of 2031 with the tunnel. And from that, they can say, your trip from Geelong to the city will take 20 minutes longer if we don't build that tunnel in 2031. There's a couple of problems with these that are really quite fatal to your ability to use them uh, to make decisions. So first of all, half the time they're incorrect. So there's as much chance of the models being incorrect as there is of them being correct. Uh, in addition to this, for uh, toll roads like the Westgate Tunnel, they tend to overestimate the amount of traffic that's going to use it. I suspect this won't be an issue with, with Transurban because of their aforementioned, uh, I guess, skill at... Solid business model. <laughs> their, solid, their solid business models. Within this future that's predicted, and, and this is maybe where I differ from, from your approach a little bit, Crystal, is that um, the detail of these models, which uh, you stated before, Emily, probably not many people have read the Infrastructure Victoria report. There's two attached technical appendices that I spent a couple of hours swimming through. Now, within that for the Westgate Tunnel, it's assumed in 2031 that there's going to be two really large pieces of infrastructure built. The Northeast Link, which will be built by 2031, according to this model, and the Outer Metropolitan Ring Road, which is, as the name suggests, an outer met like another ring road around the outside of the city, will be built by 2031 as well. So just to clarify, the traffic demand forecasting for the Westgate Tunnel Yep. It's predicated on the existence of these two other, the Outer Metropolitan Ring Road and the Northeast Link. Yes, plus about another 700 kilometres of other arterial roads in the suburbs. That's interesting. That's, that's the vision of the future, though. This, is, this ongoing transportation plan that we have is of another ring road and additional road links. Okay, this is interesting because, you know, um, my friend Cam Murray would say that uh, what we are witnessing here is an intense game of mates where the road that requires the other roads to be built is proposed first mm. and then the uh, creation of the required roads that the business case for the first road is predicated upon mm. perhaps is tended for by the same operator. Can't speculate on that to that extent. We can speculate though. Can. <laughs> This is not cold hard fact. This is uh, cold hard speculation. You, you may. I'll, I'll, um, I'll maybe ease back for now. Um, <laughs> I will speculate. But there's, yeah, there's certainly there's certainly a longer a longer plan going on here uh, that's not necessarily shared amongst people in in planning because you have your your plan Melbournes that say uh, we're going to have a city of cities and we're going to have public transport happening, and you have the projects that are arising out of these plans, assuming a relationship there, are much more of the same. Hmm. Well, the implications of that are certainly not a modal shift. And thinking about the potential for, um, for accessibility and uh, the shape of our city 
in terms of land release and the many thousands of hectares available on the outer fringes. Do you think these kinds of transport projects, you know, swim in the opposite direction to what Plan Melbourne is actually trying to achieve in terms of the form of our city and the way that we move around in the future? They swim in the opposite direction of their advice. So the the models for the Westgate Tunnel predicted something, I think it was about a 15 or 20% increase in the number of vehicle kilometres or or vehicle hours travelled, so the amount of driving that people do in the city. They also predicted a 100% increase in the amount of people using public transport. So double the number of people using public transport in 2031, we're going to build a road. Well, yeah, there seems to be a bit of a logical fallacy in there somewhere. If your model for your road not only predicated on two other roads being built, mm. but the existence of as yet to be constructed or planned for public transport uptake. Uh, it's It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Mm. Perhaps we'll just have to watch Transurban's um, share price to get an idea. <laughs> Okay, listeners, well, that was Nathan Pittman, PhD candidate, University of Melbourne, finishing off there with uh, my colleague Emily Sims, Crystal Legacy, uh, featured in the first half of that interview. So what are we to take from that? These companies are using traffic projections uh, that expect public transport used to double, but from that they take that we need more roads. They uh, build into their projections uh, roads such as uh, the North East Link, which were not publicly announced uh, at the time of uh, this contract being signed on the Western Distributor. That's quite some business case for all these new roads, isn't it? Obviously, there's a lot that goes on behind closed doors. And for you listeners, I just want you to uh, think about uh, how have PPPs remained a viable option when we've seen so many disastrous outcomes such as the Brisbane Airport link, the Clem 7 tunnel and the Sydney Cross City tunnel where the traffic projections were often 75% wrong. Many of them were 50% wrong. I'm going to put a... uh, Link to a great article from Tunnel Talk that summarises uh, the PPP angle. And Dr John Rose, Professor in Transport and Logistics Modelling at the University of Sydney Business School, agreed that overly optimistic traffic forecasts are a root cause of the problem, leading to failure of the PPPs and a result of the highest bidder winning the contract. That's the key. Whoever can offer the state governments, uh, the most money, they're the ones who win the contract. And to do that, they employ traffic forecasters that uh, bump up the numbers so that uh, it looks better for the government. And Dr. Rose goes on to say, it costs $100 million or more to prepare and submit a concession proposal. And so naturally, bidders are very keen on winning a concession. That's a technical term for uh, for winning the, the PPP deal. Just the cost of these projects are extraordinary. It seems that infrastructure companies just don't get out of bed for uh, less than a billion dollars these days. Uh, absolutely outrageous. Of course, our preferred 
mode of funding such large infrastructure costs is to award the contract to that provider which would provide the best quality road for the least cost and where the tolls would fund the repairs and the the marginal costs, the the basic operating costs, but the heavy lifting of funding that would be done through value capture. And in the uh, show notes, I'll put in a letter that I had published in the Australian Financial Review this week called Public Deserves to Reap Benefit of Windfall. goes back to the same story of wherever these new infrastructure projects are, it's the land barons who own where the on-off ramps provide ease of amenity. They are the ones who uh, make the big windfalls. The public deserves a share of that. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. I look forward to being back on the airwaves with you uh, this time next week here on the beloved 3CR Airwaves. Check the show notes at earthsharing.org.au.